Well, thanks for joining us on this holiday weekend. And since it's Labor Day in North Carolina, this means that pools are closing after tomorrow, which maybe is a thing to maybe you don't care as someone who has young kids. This is a sad thing for us to take our kids to do. And speaking of which, you know, so we've got a six-year-old and a three-year-old, our three-year-old Roman. He's pretty fearless. He runs around, doesn't really, you know, notice that he could like die at any moment. But as, as you get older, you do start to realize this a little bit more. So last year, you know, we would go to the pool and before we could even get his floaties on, he's just going to like flop, flop in, like he doesn't know. And so this year, when we started to go to the pool again, he started to get nervous about jumping in because even with his floaties on, when you jump in, you know, the water goes over your face. And so there's a second there you're freaking out. And so he didn't want to do it. So half of summer's gone by and Roman's not jumping in. And then we get to like later in July and we're at the pool again. And I'm like, Roman, you have, you can do this. And so you try the thing where you say you're going to catch them and then you kind of like don't catch them and they come back <laughs> up and then he doesn't want to do it again. And so again, one day we're at the pool and I'm like making him just like watch Finley, like just stare at your sisters. Like, see, she does it. And then Finley gets out, she does it again. And so I'm just having him just watch her over and over and over again. And finally he decides to do it. Right after seeing Finley, and Finley's okay, and she's like, you can do it, Roman, you know, because she's really sweet to him, and he finally decides to do it. So he gets to the edge of the pool, and I said, you know, like, Roman, you can do it. We're like counting down, and he jumps in, you know, comes up, waters over his face, and he looks at me, he says, again. I'm like, okay, we're good. So I pick him up, put up there, he jumps on, comes out, he says, again. I'm like, all right. So we do it about 10 times later, no exaggeration. He jumps back in the pool, he says, again, and I say, swim to the, swim to the stairs, you can do it yourself. Right? I'm not... I'm done. You figured it out. I, I've, I'm done. Now, now, here's the thing. We were glad for this moment so that he could, you know, start to do this again and join the pool a little bit. The reason he, the way he got there was by watching his sister jump in the pool. And, and we, we wanted him to watch his sister jump in the pool, not just for the fact that we wanted him to watch. We wanted him to participate. We wanted him to move from observing jumping in the pool to doing it himself. And today, as we continue through the book of the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be asking ourselves this question. What is the difference between participating with Jesus, or the difference between observing Jesus and participating with Jesus? What's the difference? How, how do we go from just watching what Jesus is doing to actually participating in what he is doing? And we're going to see this come to fruition, if you will, today in Mark chapter 2. And so um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Mark chapter 2. If you don't, there's a black one around you. You can turn to page 888. We'd love to have you read along with us. We've seen in Mark chapter 1, again, Mark moves uh, pretty fast. And last week, uh, we saw this culmination of him healing a man with leprosy. Jesus does, goes against all cultural norms and actually reaches out and touches this man. He willingly becomes ceremonially unclean for this man because he wants to do what is right and loving in that situation. And it ends, Mark chapter 1 ends, with Jesus kind of taking on the uh, penalty of someone who has leprosy, right? Someone whose leprosy is not allowed to enter the towns because of what's happened to them. And Jesus, at least for a while, because of the crowds and everything that has happened, now he is no longer allowed to enter the towns and the surrounding villages. And so we're not sure how long this is between the end of chapter one and Mark chapter two, but at least some time has gone by after this healing. Again, the name of Jesus has been spread and Jesus is trying his best to make sure people understand who he is and they don't get false ideas about what he's trying to do. And so that being said, here's what it says in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, When he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So again, Capernaum is kind of his home base, at least during ministry. He travels a lot, of course, over the last three years of his life, but this is kind of where home is for him. Uh, in fact, most scholars, biblical scholars, believe that home here is not his own home, but was actually the home of Peter. 
of Simon Peter, his lead disciple. In fact, Matthew chapter 4 even tells us that after John the Baptist was uh, imprisoned for talking about the Messiah, for baptizing Jesus, he then gets imprisoned. Uh, It says that he uh, went to live in Capernaum. So Jesus was living in Nazareth starts to kind of make home base in Capernaum. And for various reasons, uh, most, a lot of biblical scholars and commentators think that his house here was actually in the home of Simon Peter, but this is home base. And so long story short, people find out that Jesus is back. And so of course they come to see him. Uh, and so before I read this next part, just to make sure we have the understanding of what's going on here, I want to show you a picture. Uh, this is a house, or really focusing on the roof. This is what a typical roof would have looked like in first century Israel and, and, that, and that surrounding, you know, Palestinian region. Uh, typically, you would have a couple, you have like these major cross beams going one way. And I know they're called cross beams because, you know, I've started getting to work working, so I've got this terminology down, right? You have cross beams going one way, and then other cross beams going the other way. Typically, they'd be a little bit smaller, like sticks or or little rods. And then on top of that, you would have clay. And so you would make this kind of flat, hard surface. And this is typically, I'm not saying this is what the house that they were in looked like, but this roof was very common um, in the first century Israel-Roman area. You'd have cross beams one way, thinner beams going the other way, and then you'd have dried clay going on the top. And so this is kind of the roof that is going above what we're about to read happening. And so kind of put that picture in your mind, and we'll continue. Here's what it says next in verse 2. So they're in this house. People hear about Jesus. Everyone's coming to see him. It says this, verse 2. So many people gathered together that there was no room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them, Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. So they, again, like all these other people, hear that Jesus is back. Uh, They know that he's been performing miracles and healings, and so they are trying to bring their friend to come get healed by Jesus. Of course, they get there. There's a problem. There's all these people surrounding the house. There is no way that they can get in, and so they decide to get on the roof. Now, being on the roof in, you know, 21st century America, that's kind of weird, and also our roofs, like, typically aren't very safe. You know, they're angled for drainage and all that sort of thing, and so that's not something you would do. In the first century, being on the roof was actually really normal. Uh, in fact, they, uh, most houses had either uh, stairs or a ladder to give you roof access. Uh, many houses even had these contraptions or even openings from the inside for you to access the roof of your house. And so you would put things out there. You would dry things out there. They would, it would be a, a, a common place to be. And so getting on a roof isn't weird. Now, maybe getting on someone's roof who you don't know, that might be strange. But again, when there's all these people, it might not even have been weird for them, for people to go onto the roof because people would have just thought, well, they're just trying to hear Jesus. So that is not too, inter- not too you know, abnormal. Of course, what's interesting here is they start to dig through the roof, right? And so there's these people, again, they're pulling about this clay. It probably is not too difficult to do. Of course, it would have been dirty and people are like, what's going on here? So they're digging through this clay. They're digging through these sticks. And they kind of, they're making this opening so that they can lower their friend, the paralytic, to Jesus so that he can be healed. And so, again, they're causing a scene here. Of course, it's already somewhat of a scene because there's people everywhere. They get on the roof. They want Jesus to heal them. And so they, op- they make an opening in the roof so they can lower him down so that they- he could be set at the feet of Jesus. And then here's what happens next. Verse 5. It says, seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, <laughs> I don't know, again, I'm, I'm not going to, I don't know all that they were expecting to happen, but I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you ask somebody to do something for you, and then they go and do something that you didn't really ask for, right? 
Uh, so <laughs> this happened to me. I mean, in this situation, like, that's great that your sins are forgiven, right? But I'm like, I'm, I imagine them thinking, but that's not, what? <laughs> right? And so like for me, I, I've shared this before. We were in college. And so Christina's mom is a hairdresser. And so whenever we, we went to school at UNC Wilmington, and so and we stayed there for a couple of years after graduation, after Christina got married. And so whenever we were visiting Raleigh, I would get my hair cut for free. And so, but in Wilmington, I'd have to pay for it. And I'm like, this, I don't want to pay for it because I get it for free here. Why would I pay for it? And so I told Christina, we borrowed some of our friends, like haircutting clippers and stuff. I was like, you just do it. It doesn't have to be perfect. I don't have these amazing expectations, but just make it so that I don't have to get a haircut. And so we're in our kitchen and she starts cutting my hair. And then there comes to a point where she takes like the, the razor, the, whatever, I don't even know what they're called. The, well, there, you, you would think there's a guard. Let me just tell you what's going to happen here. So she starts like buzzing the back of my hair without a guard on. And I say, you should put a guard on this. And she goes, well, my mom doesn't. And you know what I'm thinking? Well, your mom is a professional. Like she doesn't have to. You know, like when you like take the... I don't know, when you, take the, when you take the comb and you, like, do this thing, like, I'm like, you can't, don't do this. And, she, and we were talking about this week. She told me she, like, forgot. I'm like, I literally told you. How do you forgot? I told you. And so she does this, and all of a sudden, in the back of my, hair, I, back of my head, I hear a, and I'm like, a chunk, just gone. It's just gone. And it was, like, it was, like, kind of, like, down here, so I couldn't even wear a hat over it because it's just, like, not there. Now, and so, you know, I, I, for like two weeks, and I'm like, like trying to like pull my hair down as if that could like block it. I don't know, right? So I asked for a haircut. Didn't quite get what I was going for. Now, of course, in this situation, being forgiven is great, but I still kind of imagine like that's not really what I was asking for. Like heal, forgiveness is great, but I was, I'm here to be, you know, be healed. Like I think, or think of it this way. You know, I've mentioned from time to time, you know, that I go to the gym. And so you might be thinking, Dylan, those muscles, like... <laughs> Can you take me to one of your gym sessions? Like, imagine you coming to one of my gym sessions. And I was like, okay, I forgive you. Like, bro, I want those muscles. I ain't asking forgiven. Or maybe you're following me on Instagram, and you see my woodworking, and you're like, bro, teach me your ways. I want to build what you're building. And I say, okay, great, come on over. And I say, your sins are forgiven. You feel like, what are you talking about? Right? That, that, what are you talking about? And I can, so I can kind of imagine here, as great as this is, the first thought must be, my sins are forgiven. That's not what I'm asking for. Now, on top of that, Jesus sees their faith. And so, again, not just the faith of the paralytic, but also his friends. He forgives the paralytic's sins. But there's also something significant going on here. Because on top of maybe not being exactly what they asked for, you have to wonder, who is Jesus to tell somebody that their sins are forgiven? I mean, likely this man has never actually sinned against Jesus himself. So that be, seems unfair. Um, it also seems to be weird. Like, imagine you coming to me, and you want to talk, and we're talking about something that somebody did to you. And imagine me telling you that, telling you that person who hurts you, their sins are forgiven. You would be thinking, what? Who, what do you talk? What do you mean? Who are you to say that? They didn't hurt you. They hurt me. How are you going to tell me that their sins are forgiven when they are not even the ones? Then you're not even the one that they sinned against. And so Jesus seems to be doing something interesting here. The only way that Jesus can forgive someone's sins is that for somehow, some way, somehow, that this man's sins also must be against Jesus himself. They also somehow must be against Jesus himself, right? You would only say your sins are forgiven if you actually are the creator, the sustainer of everything, uh, by which when you and I go our own way, uh, go ways that do not honor God, we have not only sinned against other people, but we've also sinned against God himself, right? Jesus here is making a claim about who he is, right? That he sees their faith, he grants their forgiveness, but he's making this claim. And here's what we need to see in this passage and what we see throughout all of the Gospels and all of the writings in the New Testament, that only Jesus can forgive sins. 
Now, again, they are thinking only God can forgive sins. Now, of course, we know that Jesus has come to bring the kingdom of God here to earth, that Jesus is actually the God-man, that God in the flesh, which is what the God incarnate means, that God has become man, he has become human on our behalf, that he is somebody who can now forgive sins. And the reason he does that is because everything that you and I do is actually sin against Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves, if Jesus is claiming that he's the one that forgives sins, and only Jesus himself can forgive sins through what he's going to do on the cross, then what, what is that, where does that leave you and I without Jesus? Right? If we think, you know, we blow, we fall short, I'm just going to try really hard, and I'm just going to try to do it on my own, and, and I'm going to try to tell God, hey, I was a good person, what we see to be happening here is it's not about you. It's about God and what he's done for us. Jesus is making this claim because only God can forgive sins. If Jesus is forgiving sins, then Jesus must be God. And so you have this situation. They, they dig a hole in the roof. They drop down this man. Jesus forgives them. And the religious leaders, and even probably the observant Jews, those who are maybe somewhat devout, pick up on what's going on here. What are you talking about? You can forgive sins. And so here's what happens next, verse 6. It says, But some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, there is a, it's also helpful to know there is a common thought in the first century ancient world, and honestly, even in our context today, uh, that you're, if something bad happened to you, particularly if you, were, if you were paralyzed, blind, whatever, if anything, illness, it's because you must have done something to deserve it. Right? In fact, there's a separate scene where Jesus heals a paralyzed man, and, and people ask, who did this, him or his parents? Like, what did he do to cause him to be healed? And in fact, if we're being honest, we often think the same thing. We just use spiritual language like karma and say, well, something bad happened, so you must have had something happen to you. This is a kind of an idea, a kind of a thought of what's happening. Now, what's interesting, and this might challenge us a little bit, is that Jesus here doesn't combat this idea. It's not to say that this idea is correct, that they did something to deserve it, but he doesn't, he, he's not concerned with trying to correct their theology, if you will. He's concerned about something else. And so he comes, and he actually forgives him. And so why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus, first of all, forgive his sins, and maybe even play into this idea that he did something to deserve it? Well, it's interesting if you study ancient rabbinical and Jewish literature around the time of Jesus and even before the time of Jesus, that the, you would have people who, like today, would claim to be healers or faith healers. But it's interesting that none of these people, even when they try to do these healing services or these healing moments, none of them ever claimed that they could forgive sins. That was never part of the idea. It was just that they would try to do whatever they could to heal you. In fact, uh, in fact, there is a, a, a Jewish text called the Psalms of Solomon that were written in the first or second century BC. So somewhere around 200 years or less before Jesus came onto the scene. And it is this idea of what they thought or some of the ideas of who they thought this Messiah, this anointed one would do when he came to earth. And so long story short, in this text, the Psalms of Solomon, it talks about this Messiah who is going to come and um, outcast demons, like uh, make the demons flee. It talks about how this Messiah is going to bring in a perfect government to rule and to reign and to bring peace and justice and safety to the world. Uh, it talks about um, how he's going to judge evil. There's all these things that Jesus does, but it, what it doesn't say is that this person is going to be sinless. And it doesn't say that this person is going to forgive sins. Because again, the idea is only God can do that. And so Jesus is doing something here that people would not have assumed that the Messiah was supposed to do, right? He was supposed to overthrow the Roman Empire and bring peace and justice and safety and security. And yet, 
Jesus is doing what nobody would have thought, right? In other words, if we were there and we were an astute, you know, Jew Israelite and we were listening to this, we would actually agree with the scribes here. You are blaspheming. Who are you to tell somebody that their sins are forgiving? This would make us uncomfortable. Even if we were pro-Jesus, we would probably be like, can you do that? I'm, I'm not quite sure. And so here's what happens next. Verse 8. This is, this is awesome. It says this. Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? And so here we see something profound that Jesus not only knows the sins of the paralytic, but he also knows the hearts of the scribes. So he knows what people do, and he knows what people think, and so therefore he confronts them. Now, as cool as this is, if we're being honest, this can also uh, maybe make us a little uncomfortable. right? It can make us uncomfortable, right? the fact that God knows everything about you, not only what you do externally, but also the internal stuff, the stuff that we try to hide from people, the stuff that we don't tell people about. He knows what you do, he knows what you think, and he knows your desires, right? And so again, for us in all of our lives, no matter who you are, we, all, we spend so much time projecting an image of who we are so that people will accept us. No matter who you are, no matter how faithfully or how, how spiritually mature you are, we all, again, it's a human need. We want to be accepted. We want to be loved. We, want, we do all of these things to protect this image so that people will accept us as we are. And yet we see Jesus, who knows everything about you, knows your hearts and desires, and yet he still loves you. I mean, how incredible is this? Right? How incredible is it if, if, we, if you thought that people knew everything you thought and knew all of your desires, you would be embarrassed, would you not? I mean, I would be embarrassed. Right, because this facade would no longer be here. And yet, the good news of the gospel is that only God himself knows everything about you. And he doesn't turn his back from you. Uh, he doesn't reject you, but he invites you in. I love how Tim Keller, who's a pastor and author, he puts it this way. His, his, this quote is all I could think about when I read this passage. He says this, it'll be on the screen. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God, right? To be known and not loved is superficial, right? Because we know on the inside, people, if they really knew who we are, they wouldn't love us. Or to be fully known and not loved is our greatest fear because nobody actually wants us for who we are. Nobody actually can accept us, can take us. But yet, God, who the only person who actually know, truly knows you and also truly loves you, this is why we say this often at New City Church, that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have nothing to prove and no one to impress because of this right here. You are fully known and fully loved by God, and he invites you in. In other words, here's what, here's what we see happening here, and here's a reminder of us of the gospel, that only God fully knows and fully loves you. Only God fully knows and fully loves you. No one else knows everything about you. Yet God does, and he loves you, and he invites you. And I, there it really is no full comparison to this. I think the closest thing we have maybe in human existence is a parent and a child, right? If you have, have children, right, you know your children more than anyone else. You've seen them in all of their developmental stages. You know their desires, how they tend to do things. Like, you know more about them than the average person. And every parent, unless, again, unless there's some mental thing going on there, loves their children probably more than anything else no matter what their kids do, right? Even if their kids end up doing terrible things and they're in prison for doing awful things, and maybe obviously the parent might say, yeah, I wish they wouldn't do those things, but they still don't give up on their child. They still love their child. 
They still care, their, they care for their child. And so if you have children or if you don't, it's probably really easy to imagine this, that you are the only person, if you have children, who you, you know your kids more than most people do. And yet there's nothing your child can do that would make you stop loving them. Literally nothing. And what we see happening here is that only God fully knows and fully loves you. And he welcomes you. And this is the good news of what Christ has come. This is the kingdom that he's inviting us to participate in. And so again, here's what happens next. I'll read verse 8 again, and we'll keep going. It says this. So right away, Jesus proceeds in his spirit that they were thinking this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? And then verse 9, which is easier to say? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Right? Which of those is easier to do? Now, what we see happening here on, on the surface Right, you would say, well, forgiving the sins, that's easier because it's not verifiable. Like you can just kind of say it, nothing anyone can do about it, and so it's just that's what happened. You would assume that that's easier, right? But Jesus has something else in mind to teach them. And so he says this in verse 10. He says, but so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Right? Here, Jesus is demonstrating his authority over everything by healing the paralytic. See, the answer to the question, what is easier to, forgive, for, to grant the forgiveness of sin or to heal someone, the answer is, is actually forgiving sins because nobody can do that but God alone. That is the point. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's doing a vis- visible miracle for the healing of this paralytic to show that he actually has the authority to forgive people's sins. It is actually harder to forgive sins, but to show you that I can do this, I'm going to do what you assume is harder to do and heal this man and allow him to stand up and walk. Now, as a side note, I want to point this out here to help us understand what's going on here. Jesus refers to himself at this moment as the son of man. He says, to show you that the Son of Man actually has authority over all these things, I tell this man to get up and walk. Now, interestingly enough, the Son of Man, a little Bible trivia for you, is the thing that Jesus most commonly refers to himself as. It's the self-title that he gives himself more than anything else. It's the Son of Man. Now, everybody else, the biggest title that, that he gets from other people is the Messiah or the Christ, which means the Anointed One. But he calls himself the Son of Man. Now, what does this Son of Man actually mean? Well, in the, re- in the Old Testament, again, because Scripture is a unified story that points to Jesus, whenever we come across things that are interesting or phrases that don't make sense, we should read the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, to try to understand what he is referring to. And so in the Old Testament, the Son of Man can refer to one of two things. So number one, and primarily or most often in the Old Testament, the Son of Man refers to a mere human being. A son of man. Lots of people are called son of men or a son of man often in the Old Testament. It just means that you are a human being. There's nothing significant about it. But there is also a second category of the son of man that is quite significant. And this is introduced to us in Daniel chapter 7. So the, first, Daniel, the book of Daniel is an Old Testament book. The, the first, chap, first six chapters are the story of Daniel. You know, he's in captivity in Babylon. It's kind of a narrative. Here's what happens. The last six chapters of Daniel are kind of more uh, prophetic or apocalyptic. It is God revealing himself or revealing certain things to Daniel. And so in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has this dream. And a long story short, he has this dream of the Son of Man. And the son of man that he has a dream about is divine. Uh, this son of man uh, has a dwelling in heaven at the right hand of God. Uh, this son of man will one day overcome evil, and all of the people, all of creation will worship him. 
So Daniel has a dream of a, dream of a divine man whose who's dwelling is in heaven, who will one day overcome evil, and one day all of creation will bow down and worship him. Right? And so the, the people have, and the, and the scribes here have a choice to make. Which son of man is this? Is, this, is he saying he's just a normal man? Or is he saying that he is the son of man that God revealed to Daniel in this dream? And just like the scribes and the, everyone in this, in this room or in the outside this house, house have, a, have a question to answer, so do you and so do I. So the question we also have to answer is this. Who is the son of man to you? Who is the son of man? Knowing what the Old Testament says about the son of man, he's either a normal person or he is God himself who's going to judge evil and all of the world and all of creation will one day bow down to him. Who is the son of man to you? Jesus is inviting us to answer this question. Now, when we ask this question, this isn't like a, what, what is your truth and whatever your truth is. That's what, that's not, the reality the situation is, the answer is Jesus. Like, hint, the son of man is actually, Jesus is actually God himself, who his dwelling's place is in heaven, who all of, came, all of creation will one day worship him. But you and I have, decide, have to decide, will we view him as such, or we, will we view him to our own undoing and maybe to our own shame as simply just another human being? Because we've even seen already in the beginning, first chapter of Mark, in the beginning of chapter two, Jesus never says the words, I am God in a 21st century Western context. But if you are even somewhat familiar with the Jewish scriptures, he is screaming all over the place. This is who I am. This is why constantly he's being charged with blasphemy. It's why constantly they want to arrest him and one day will arrest him and have him killed because Jesus is claiming something here. The, the, the scribes who are thinking, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus is saying the Son of Man can. Oh yeah, the Son of Man who actually's dwelling place is in heaven and one day rule and reign over all of creation. Jesus is calling himself that he is this Son of Man who has come. He is the Son of Man who has come. And then it says this in verse 12, the last verse we read. It says, immediately, talking about the paralytic here, immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And so again here, the paralytic answers the question that forgiving sins, that Jesus can forgive sins by getting up and walking getting up and walking. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's inviting people to put Jesus, the son of man, in the divine category, that he actually is God who has come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And then what does it say? What happens oftentimes in Mark? It says people are amazed. They're astounded. They're amazed. The crowd says we have never seen anything like this. Now, I've mentioned this before, but in the book of Mark, almost 40 times, we have crowds mentioned or, you know, insinuated. There's a bunch of people around Jesus. The problem, however, is that the, the crowd is never a net positive thing, right? The good news about the crowd is that they can help spread Jesus' message, hopefully spread the accurate message and not try to make Jesus into something he's not claiming to be, but they can, they can you know, promote his message, which can be a good thing. The problem is that they are never described as turning to in repentance and faith Jesus. They are generally either fickle or passive or sometimes even obstructive. Like even in this text, the paralytic couldn't even get there because there's a bunch of people in the way. They are never a net positive thing in the gospel of Mark. And even as we've seen already that Jesus does things that wouldn't make sense if you're simply trying to start a movement to gain a lot of followers to do whatever you want to do, right? Jesus is more concerned with our hearts and people who are after him. And so what we see happening here is a truth that we see all throughout Mark, and that is that Jesus is after followers, not crowds. Jesus is after followers, not 
crowds. Yes, Jesus does a lot of amazing stuff, but it is never, he doesn't do amazing stuff just so people will show up. He is not concerned about that, right? It's always meant to lead the crowds, to, me, to lead you and to lead me deeper into something else, not just as observers of what's going on, but, but as it participates in his kingdom and in his work. Again, it reminds me of Finley and Roman this summer, right? We were begging Roman to watch Finley, not simply so that, she, that he could watch Finley, but that so he would participate in what she was doing, that he, that he himself would also jump into the pool. He, we want him to watch so that he can participate, not just simply be a passive observer of what is going on. And so the question for you and for me is, what does it look like for us to move from passive observers to active participate, participants in his kingdom? And no matter who you, depending on who you are and what you come in here with, it's different, right? For, for some of us, for some of you, it might be you're not quite sure about this Jesus thing. And so what it looks like for you to, to continue in what you're doing is to continue to come, continue to ask questions, to continue to seek and to ask God to make himself real for you. That is what it looks like for you right now to begin following Jesus is not to remove yourself from a situation where you can learn about him, but to continue to come and to engage. Uh, for others, what this might mean is it is time to follow and to experience God's grace in your life. You know God loves you. You know God accepts you where you, where you, accepts you, where you are. And you know you, that he is inviting you into his kingdom. And so for some of us, it is actually saying yes to Jesus, to all the blessings and all the grace that he has for us, to saying yes for Jesus. Maybe for you, it's also participating in baptism next weekend, that you know God loves you where you are. He doesn't want to leave you where you are. And he's inviting you into, your, into his kingdom. And so for you, quite literally, it could be moving from a crowd to a follower. Or maybe you have been following Jesus for a while in your life. But if you're honest, there is an area of your life where you are more of an observer, right? Where you know there's a sin struggle, there's a weakness, there's a problem, there's an issue in your life that you've kind of avoided, that you've kind of not told anybody about because you don't want to be embarrassed, or you've kind of like, well, I'm, I'm good most, ever, most all the other places, but this place, I'm kind of keep it to myself. What would it look like for you to move from an observer in this area of, of your life to a follower, right? What would it look like for you? to enter into the pool that Jesus is leading you into this morning? And what would it look like for you to follow him in? Because at the end of the day, Jesus is after followers, not crowds. Let's pray.